0: Welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Aidan Coleman, Chief Executive Officer of Bega Cheese Limited. Say. It's great to have you along again today, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you this conversation with Aidan. I'd never met him prior to conducting this interview, but he's certainly a lovely guy and has got a very interesting background. The dairy industry in Australia is going through a particular period of scrutiny um, with what's happening in the press. And so it was quite timely to be able to have this discussion with Aidan and get his views on not only the industry, but also the future for Australian agriculture. Uh, Before I introduce Aidan to you more formally, let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the Managing Partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if we can assist you in terms of your job search or in terms of recruiting into your organisation, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me now introduce to you, Aidan Coleman. Aidan Coleman grew up on a dairy farm in New Zealand, and after finishing school, went and completed a double major in economics and psychology at the Auckland University. After an initial career with a metal manufacturing organisation, he moved into the dairy industry and has worked for a number of organisations, both in New Zealand, in Sri Lanka, and more recently in Australia. He's been the CEO of Bega Cheese since May 2001, and early in that period saw the company go through an IPO to become now an ASX Top 200 company in Australia. Aidan lives in Melbourne with his wife. He has three sons and he is a very, very proud supporter of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby Union team. Sit back now and enjoy this conversation with Aidan Coleman. Well, Aiden, uh, thanks very much for uh, joining me today on the Arrate podcast. It's great to have you here. And from what I understand, you've been uh, in Brisbane attending a conference.
1: Yes. Good morning, Richard. It is nice to be here as well. Uh, Yes, I've just uh, spent the last two days at the Australian Food and Grocery Council annual conference, which is held here in the the Sofitel. Right. uh, Which is very, very interesting and gives you a a good opportunity to network with colleagues in the industry as well as um, look at the, the future Future right. trends and the global okay. trends.
0: And that's something that they do every year, is it? Yes, they right. do. yes. Okay. yes. Uh, but I imagine they move it around, it's not in Brisbane all the time? Uh, it tends to be up in the northern part of Australia. Okay. Think, because it's a winter. Yeah, right. Winter program. It, uh-huh. it suits everybody. You get, get away from a uh, cold and miserable Melbourne <laughs> to arrive in Brisbane where the re- weather reports are saying it's probably going to be cold and miserable. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, it's still nice. Yeah, sure. Well, look, uh, Aiden. Uh, perhaps just to begin the conversation, just have a chat to us about your current professional responsibilities.
1: Sure, Richard. I'm the CEO of Bigger Cheese Limited. Um, Bigger is a an ASX 200 listed company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we floated as a public company. The IPO was in August 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business is approximately 1.2 billion in revenue. Um, everything's very very transparent. If you go to our website, all of our investor reports are sure. there. So you know we, we don't have to sort of uh, explain too much about the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, where uh, our origins are as a as a dairy cooperative, mm-hmm. 117 years old, um, and we're very focused on probably one of the most advanced value add dairy companies in this, certainly in Australia. Okay, um, key parts of our business our infant formula Mm -hmm.
0: and of course the Be Your Cheese Mm -hmm. brand which is which is very big. Sure and uh, the uh, dairy industry going through you know quite a lot of uh, scrutiny at the moment with what's going on I imagine it must be quite an interesting place uh, to be playing when a particularly you're a listed company. Yes I think the um,
1: disturbing thing for us it's not and it's not really an industry issue. Mm-hmm. It's been made into an industry issue because it was really the outcome of one particular company that mm. in our view you know, probably mismanaged or had problems in the way they were running and communicating to the mm-hmm. to their investors and, and farming constituency. But it's spilled over into a um, into a more industry wide sure. issue. Yeah. Underlying the underlying issue is in fact um, a global commodity cycle mm-hmm. which having been around the dairy industry for more than 30 years you know these things happen sure. about every seven years so yep. um, unfortunately there's a few people around that haven't been
0: around that right time. yeah i mean certainly from a queensland point of view uh You'd say exactly the same thing about mm. the mining industry. Mm. So, uh, and in uh, recognising you've been in the dairy industry for you know the majority of your career, uh, certainly keen to talk more about that uh, as we get into this uh, podcast conversation. But I like to start where it all began, and so maybe tell us a little bit about uh, where you were born and your early life, etc. Okay, then right.
1: Uh, look, I'm a, I'm a um, New Zealander. Yeah. As um, I said to someone recently, there's. Um, deeply religious person. There's only one God and they wear a black football jersey <laughs> and a silver fern. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but seriously, yes, I was born in Auckland right? Um, and was educated in Auckland. Okay. I went to, went to primary and secondary school there.
0: What did mum and dad do?
1: Well, mum and in those days, I think most mothers were in fact, um, homemakers okay. and uh, my father was a master on a ship, on a right. cargo ship. So he spent a lot of time mm-hmm. away. Um, and I think Mum was probably, the as a result of that, was a, a very, very strong, right, strong manager of of a sure. house, and certainly,
0: um, you know, ran the, ran the family very well. She was so, the matriarch of right. Uh-huh. So he'd be away for you know very long periods sailing around the world. I imagine.
1: Yes, although in, in the more latter years, certainly in my memory, uh, most of it was the Trans Tasman trade. Okay. He he was on um steel ships that used to go right. to Wyella and Newcastle okay. and back to New Zealand and the pulp and paper industry okay. and, that, and then the roll-on roll-off the containerized mm-hmm. ships so mm-hmm. um most of it was t- two-week trips to Australia there and back very mm-hmm. very uh high, you know intensive sure um, turnarounds in those days okay mm-hmm. and brothers and sisters Three brothers. I'm the youngest of... You're the um, youngest? I'm the youngest of four. All right. Four
0: brothers and I have three sons. Well, we have three sons. Okay. So well, there you go. <laughs> Somewhere along the way we... Uh, you have your have... own rugby team. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and are your brothers uh, also working in commerce?
1: Uh, well, the two of them are effectively retired now. They've okay. They're all older than myself. Right. Um, <laughs> but they have... One was in the IT industry... Uh-huh. Um, Another was in the
0: property industry another was in the transport industry. Right. And so um, uh, uh, high school and then um, what happened after high school for you? I
1: went to, um, when I was growing up I spent a lot of time on my family's dairy farms. My mother came from a um, a family family in in the Waikato of New Zealand, all on dairy farms. So uh, it was quite interesting in terms of how you set your sights on what you're going to do at university. I think I was, everyone said, oh, you love you love animals, so why don't you become a vet? Right. <laughs> um, so I went off to Massey University, and uh, I like to refer to it as my gap year. Okay. Uh, I had a, had a great time coming out of boarding school and started sure. the, yeah. the freedoms of, of um, Massey University, but I spent a year there. And then went back to Auckland University and did a degree in economics
0: and psychology. So the the year at Massey was studying vet science. Vet science and right. Yeah. And you, it just didn't do it for no, you. No, right. I really, it didn't. Um,
1: no regrets. I mean, it was a life a life learning experience mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And actually, I went back to Massey after doing my first degree. I went back and did a business degree mm-hmm. there anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I like to sort of think that I, there was completion in, sure. in my education. At and university. so,
0: while you were uh, uh, going through university, were you working as well, or did you? Um...
1: I did um, in Auckland. I, I, on my early days, I used to go back and work on the dairy farm. Okay. Um, and then, in, when I was in Auckland in the latter years of my degree there, I worked in a hotel, mm-hmm. like I think most students still okay, do. Right, in a pub. <laughs> in a pub well right. i actually used to work in the house bar and um almost true to my my roots it was a hotel that used to have all the sporting teams okay right so that's staying there so the british lions and the wallabies and uh-huh. whatnot so it was right it was very interesting
0: oh good and were you playing rugby uh
1: at the time i did i played until i was about 23 okay. and i tore all the ligaments in my knee and in right. those days they I mean, it is a wonder how you see the technology move, oh, sure. and particularly in medicine. Yeah, they said, "Oh, you can't, you can't play rugby again." And right. Put a whole lot of pins into my knee. Okay. Um, these days, I think
0: they'd say you're probably out for a season, and yeah, you, that's you right. come back, no, it, it's uh, I my uh, job when I was going through university was working as an orderly in an operating theatre. Oh, okay. And I used to see the sportsmen come in uh, for their various operations, and absolutely, it's like the six million dollar man now. It uh, is yeah. with all the technology, and so uh you did a year of veterinary science what then inspired you to go into um economics uh what did you realize within yourself that made that change
1: i'd studied uh economics in my last two years at school Mm -hmm. at a very rudimentary level in secondary school Mm -hmm. um and i think i was attracted to the to the more commercial right rather than science-based subjects so um I didn't want to be an accountant, right? Uh, so I, I studied economics, but I actually, even at that stage, I saw a correlation between um, macro movements in terms of yep. commerce and psychology mm. uh, in terms of people's behaviour. Mm. So um,
0: that seems an unusual combination.
1: Well, it, it may seem it, but when you think about economics, is about supply and demand, mm-hmm. which is ultimately founded on if you take it down to an individual's level or even in group levels, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's founded on behavior. Sure. So psychology is really
0: the study of behavior Absolutely. or behavior modification. But as a, a dual degree, was that something that many people were doing or, or was that something particular to you?
1: Uh, there wouldn't have been very many... No, and it's a long time ago now, but right. I don't recall anybody right. doing specifically what I was doing. Yeah, okay, okay.
0: interesting. And so um, uh, uh, you finished your university qualifications, and so what happened then?
1: I, uh, I joined a company called Alex Harvey Industries, which was mm-hmm. part of an Australian company, ACI, oh, yes. uh, the big glass, glass yeah. and packaging company, and did a management training scheme there. Um, And that was very good, it gave me, it was like six months in every function in a business and Mm -hmm. I look back on it and that, it was a great grounding for Mm -hmm. what a whole company looks like. Sure. Um, So I've really made my my entire career out of general management Mm -hmm. Um, and I think if if I look back it was those foundations were the, gave me that perspective on obviously how finance, how manufacturing. Mm -hmm how
0: human resources mm-hmm. are they all linked together to to create a, a gestalt really sure mm-hmm. it's like a uh, a practical version of an mba giving you a bit of a taste of uh, all of the various uh facets that synergistically make a business successful
1: absolutely and you know when you think back on it you come out of university brimming with with knowledge mm-hmm. but with not a lot of practical experience sure. like i knew how to work on a farm and yep. how to work in a pub, mm-hmm. um, but you know, in terms of practical commercial experience, you're
0: really at, at um,
1: ground zero. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And then when you uh, completed the graduate program, you moved into marketing.
1: <laughs> I did, but it was, uh, I was with a packaging company. Yeah. So um, the marketing was really industrially industrial based marketing yeah. um, and sales as well. Um, and again, that was good grounding. But the company I was with actually had a joint venture with a New Zealand dairy company. Okay. So after five or so years with um, with AHI, I, I went into a, I left there and went into a smaller company, mm-hmm. and then spent a year there, realizing that was Pen Mason. Yes, yes. Right. It was actually interesting. and I think one of the a lesson I would give even to my sons, I say it to them when they're looking at jobs ensure you work in companies that have good, strong cash flows, that yeah. are cash generating yeah. companies, because if you're working on one that's unless it's your own startup, mm-hmm. um, it, it's very, you know, you're sort of always
0: sure. wondering whether it's going to be there next week or next year. And so what was the uh, the motivation for you to step out of what obviously was quite a large business into a smaller business? You just wanted to get a, get a f- taste of what that looked like or?
1: Well, two things really. One, I think, in, in when you're young, you have a, a degree of frustration in a large, a large business that you can be doing more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went into a general management role with a small business. Mm-hmm. Um, again, no regrets in doing it, mm-hmm. but it, it, I think there's a learning there as well that the grass isn't always greener on sure. the other side. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, as I say, I stayed there for a year, and then I actually moved on from there to the other side of the joint venture right. that AHI had had, with okay. and we made, um, I worked for a dairy company called Tartua yes, in New Zealand, um, which is a very old company, been All around, right. hugely successful company now, um, but they they'd launched a product called Dairy Whip, the aerosol cream. Oh, cream I remember that. So I, went, so I joined them and that was a joint venture with, right. with the can makers. Okay. Um, and uh, I joined them to become their consumer products manager. So mm-hmm. that was really my start in right. pure consumer products. Right, yeah.
0: okay. Just as an aside, somebody told me once, the grass might be greener on the other side, but you still have to mow the lawn.
1: That's, and, yes, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, and, and you know, I look back and no, I see none of the things I've done has ever been Career derailers or sure. anything like that, and they've been great learning experiences. Yeah,
0: and so uh, into Tatua to uh, in this role, um, uh, consumer products manager, and and then moving through marketing into more of a general management function again. Yes, right. yes. Over a period of time, I, I stayed with
1: Tatua for uh, I think it was about twelve years. Okay. Um, and when I when I first got there, it was just it was a one trick pony in terms of the consumer business. Yeah, it yeah. had this aerosol cream that was right. very successful. Okay, very successful here in Australia actually. Um, but we, or well, I, led it, um, and we expanded the business right throughout Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. um, through Latin America, Chile, mm-hmm. Argentina, okay. areas such as that, um, and even over to in those days into South Africa and, right. and parts of. Parts like that, um, but then we developed, expanded the business into food, the food service industry with right. uh, aseptic bag and box packaging. So the big bladders, like wine, the old oh, wine yeah. casks, yeah. for dairy products, and we okay. made a lot of um, dairy-based cheese sauces and soft right. serve ice cream mixes, and oh, all okay, these sure. things yeah, for yeah. fast food chains. Uh-huh. And that was a very very successful business mm-hmm. as well. Um, and, and even even in those days we were focusing on Asia mm-hmm. New Zealand at the time was you know very um, constructive in its export focus mm-hmm. uh, for food products and we participated in that and I think we probably re, you know rode that wave for mm. quite a quite a while and particularly mm. Southeast Asia in those mm-hmm. days China was I think my first experience in China was in 1992. Okay. Um, so well before it became mm-hmm.
0: um, the commercial
1: powerhouse that sure, it is today.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, uh, certainly in terms of this uh, growing uh, middle class that want access to high quality food uh, and in particular dairy and protein, uh, I mean it is one of the industries of the future for Australia. Definitely isn't. It? Would you um, uh, agree with that?
1: I do, um, I think uh, and it's good to see these days the, the rhetoric around Australia, you know, four or five years ago, politicians particularly would be saying it's the food bowl of Asia Well, right. it just practically can't be, it's not. doesn't produce enough food to, mm-hmm. to you know, feed two billion plus mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're very focused on high uh, value added food mm-hmm. and, and the great thing about Australia um, that countries and communities, consumers uh, in, in Asia look at is it's biosecurity. I mean, if you buy food out of Australia, you have a very high level of confidence that yeah. it's going to be mm-hmm. um, good functioning, very good food and well-produced and mm-hmm. secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence, it's got a very strong future there. But, you know, I think um, it needs to very fo- be very focused
0: on the higher in the far mm-hmm. more value-added mm-hmm. components. Of okay food. so it sounds to me as though uh you know quite early in your career back in the uh you know uh the Tatua days you were developing you know a personal brand and expertise around this value-add you know, taking what is essentially a fairly commoditized product uh, and looking at ways to really create um, market-leading uh, uh, value-add uh, opportunities. Yes and,
1: and I, look, I looked at it um, in a, probably a little bit different to the average person in a mm-hmm. dairy, dairy company um, We got into the UHT business um, okay. producing UHT dairy products mm-hmm. and, and we looked at it and went you know the, the return on UHT milk might be let's say 70 cents a liter yeah the return on these technically advanced um, value add, real value-added uh, product sources and mm-hmm. and certain sorts of bases, and that for the food service industry was about three dollars a liter. Right, and we went well. There's no point being in, you know, in white milk. You, you have to have a, a scale that equals, you know, the Germans or sure. the, the massive producers in Europe. Um, so we focused very
0: much on right uh, on that technically advanced product. Interesting, and and coming back to you know the conversation you had earlier about your university qualifications. Um, There was a very sort of strong economic driver, but I think from a psychology point of view, were you seeing that that um, uh, awareness that you developed from an academic point of view was enabling you to have some uh, read on the psychology behind people, and in particular Southeast Asia now having an appetite for these kind of products?
1: I probably, I never considered it in that context actually Richard, but it, it, it would have been intuitively developing Absolutely. in that way. I mean, looking at at behavioural, and I took a great interest in 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 my early years, um, my twenties and thirties. Took a great interest in in people's behaviour in mm-hmm. different cultures and mm-hmm. how to work, and was always fascinated by, you know, what colours work in what cultures right. and what sort of things you can and can't do, and yeah. you know. The, whether or not you're allowed to use a handkerchief or whatever, right. yeah, all, all these sorts of things. <laughs> sure. yeah. uh, uh, you know, so the, the cultural aspects of um, of the markets we were working mm-hmm. in was really something that I found very, very interesting and exciting because, sure. I, you know, I think I learned very early in the piece that you don't try and sell your products from your successful home markets. You mm-hmm. sell what consumers want. Mm. And now, that's motherhood, it's
0: sort of a 101 yeah.
1: marketing these days, but 20, a lot of 30 years sti- ago, it was, it was quite different. Well,
0: even now, I mean, I see evidence all the time of people having a great idea and building you know, a product or building uh, a marketing campaign around something, then going, well, I wonder if people actually want to buy this or not. Oh, uh, this, yes, <laughs> and And so um, uh, you then moved into uh, a business which had a very strong focus specifically on Sri Lanka.
1: Well I, in those days I think it was 1996 um, the New Zealand Dairy Board was, a, was created as a sta- statutory body. Okay. It wasn't a government department but it was actually owned by all the dairy cooperatives in New Zealand um, and Tatua the company that I was working for was therefore you know, a part owner. Yeah. I think we probably had one percent of okay. the entire thing. Right. Um, that that company, the New Zealand Dairy Board, has consequently ca- gone on to become a cornerstone of what's known now as Fonterra, the yeah. world's biggest dairy exporter. Mm-hmm. Um, but through working with the Dairy Board, in, at, when I was at Tararua, I was approached and asked whether I'd consider um, going and working in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and being you know, leading the company over there, probably. On the podcast, I won't
0: use the words that I
1: used
0: when I was asked if I'd do it. But uh, you weren't you weren't uh, enamoured by the idea.
1: Well, no. All I knew about Sri Lanka in those days was that they played cricket and they had a civil war going on. So, um, but we were. uh, I think I was in my late 30s or somewhere around about then. Yeah, Um, and our children were you know, in uh, I think they was six to 12 or something at that stage. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I talked to my wife about it, who I think looking back, she's probably the, certainly the compass on and what I do and where I go. Okay. You know, a great sounding board. And so we said, look, we'll go over and have a look. And um, if we like it. Yeah. Um, then we'll make that decision then. Sure. But, but it was on the basis. The job was a very good job. Uh, an interesting, very interesting market, a very powerful brand, bigger than Coca Cola or anything in that mm, particular market. Okay. Um, so, in the end, I said to the the search company, "Look, the job I'll go to, but it's ultimately up to my wife whether she's prepared to be there with yeah. me, with our family, right? In a effectively a war zone." Yeah, <laughs> sure. So um, we went over and. and agreed that it was we, mm-hmm. we would do it and we'd do it for three years you know mm-hmm. we had this vision of three years there and then back to New Zealand and you know maybe one day perhaps in Australia but um, right. you never actually
0: whatever your strategy is never quite works out how you expect. And so uh was it in fact um was the conflict there as uh, ferocious as you perhaps expected it to be? It
1: was a. Uh, an interesting place to be um as a Westerner or foreigner there mm-hmm. we never felt in danger right uh, unlike a lot of conflicts around the world that yeah. are quite deliberately focused on foreigners mm-hmm. uh, there it was a civil war between two between the government and and the tamil people yeah or a part of a, a tamil faction mm-hmm. it had been going on for 25 years when we were there mm-hmm. uh, it was very brutal very tragic mm-hmm. um, and when you see the devastation that, that war does to just the economic development of a country, whether mm-hmm. it's there or Africa or wherever it might be, it's, it really is tragic and very, um, very confronting. Um, but we, you know, we lived a great life there. You live a very uh, sort of enriched family life because mm-hmm. you're close, you're very close. Yeah. Your relationships with other expatriates, it's a very small expatriate community, but mm-hmm. they're very intense relationships because you're that's the group you mix with Mm -hmm. the company itself was awesome would be how i would describe it it was um it was created through a joint venture partner who who we actually the the dairy board eventually bought out completely okay but the the marketing of the brand and it was around the anchor brand uh for milk powders was about mother's mother's trust okay it was a very emotional connection um and it was about really giving your child the best start in life Mm -hmm. um and i think if you talk to any mother or father or any young couple with children it's probably the number one focus they have is of course what do i do what can i do to Mm. give my child the best start in life Mm -hmm. and when you're in a country like that where milk powder is relatively expensive mm-hmm. um, in comparison to their incomes it's a uh, you know the the connection and the part you play in the family life is actually um, one it's very responsible mm-hmm. but two it's quite extensive.
0: Mm-hmm. And so this was milk powder
1: manufactured in New Zealand? New Zealand and Australia. We um, right. The bulk of it came from New Zealand but we had some brands that we, we eventually bought okay
0: um, that we're from from here from australia right so not dissimilar to the current situation where the chinese are buying you know almost as much uh, australian baby formula as they can possibly get their hands on um a
1: slightly diff a, a different dynamic uh in sri lanka the business was we would um export bulk 25 kg okay. bags to sri lanka right we had a, a huge packing factory there that repacked into 400 gram mm-hmm. consumer packs. Um, and then we had a, a massive distribution network. Okay. Whereas with Infant Formula today, and we're the probably the biggest producer of it mm. in Australia at Began now, um, it's very much around product can in Australia because yeah. of its technology and security Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and multi multi channels of Mm -hmm. distribution including
0: all of the the chinese that are buying Mm -hmm. it here and exporting it themselves i um use uber a lot uh and anyway uh, a couple weeks ago i called for my uber and this guy rocks up a chinese guy in a brand new five series bmw beautiful and i thought he must be a senior exec who's been made redundant and uh and anyway i said to him what do you do he said oh my wife and i've got a business where we basically just go into pharmacies and just buy stuff that we then uh sell into china i said well what are you doing driving uber for and he said oh, i just get like to get out for an hour or so a day and just clear my head and so there's uh there's gold in them there hills isn't there absolutely yeah and, uh, they're, I
1: they're called the Daigo's or something okay. there's several hundred thousand in australia right so it's uh, a very and they're. Uh, turning over up to $50 million a year. Some very mm. sophisticated businesses. Right, wow, yeah.
0: okay. So you're in Sri Lanka for about uh, three years? We were there for four years. Four we, years. We
1: went over on a
0: three year contract. Okay.
1: And, um, and we extended it for four years. Right. And, and We really enjoyed Sri Lanka. It was, the job was a great job mm-hmm. with the greatest brand in my view and, mm-hmm. and certainly in Sri Lanka, um, the greatest sales system um, to reach everybody there uh, and as a family I mean you're living in a in, a, in the tropics um, where it, it wasn't a highly expensive place to live mm-hmm. so you lived very well mm-hmm. uh, and you traveled a lot because you if you can sort of picture Sri Lanka it's about the size of Tasmania with the population of Australia in it right so wherever you go you can't get away from people sure um, so we used to travel a lot away okay. outside Sri Lanka, yeah. as they call it. You you go out of the island, right? Um, but you know we we had luxuries such as the Maldives was forty minute flight, so you could duck down there for the weekend. Okay, talk to people in Australia about
0: that. They right. So your kids were enjoying life too.
1: They went to a, they, yes, they were. They enjoyed it a lot. They right. went to a uh, an international school. Mm-hmm. Um, principal was actually an Australian. Okay, uh, a lot of and they still have you know close friends all around the world that were at the school at the time doing various things Um, they enjoyed it it was you know you you didn't play rugby you didn't play soccer Mm -hmm. but you participated in swimming and athletics Mm -hmm. and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, you know but we we had uh, you know great experiences Mm -hmm. such as going hot air ballooning over the Serengeti Plains in Tanzania wow. and things like that. So we really sure. were able to take advantage of being there.
0: Good on you. And so what uh, uh, then motivated the move to Bonland?
1: Well at the end of, at the end of three years, my contract was up at the end of three years mm-hmm. and I said to them look I'll extend it for a year, we're, we're happy here, mm-hmm. it suited our children's education. The oldest one was doing the International Baccalaureate mm-hmm. and it just suited that. But in the last two years there I'd witnessed two suicide bombings and okay. and the last one was in the fourth year that I was there. And right. Thirty five people were killed probably fifty meters in front of us mm. on a bus. Wow. And that at that time you realise life was actually quite fragile. Sure. And, you know, are you being responsible having a family in a place like that? Mm-hmm. And nothing was ever focused on as I say on mm-hmm. on foreigners or westerners but you know luck is luck absolutely um, yeah so we and we didn't really want to stay any longer yeah I think the the old adage you know you go troppo mm-hmm. um, you do right so uh, we were quite determined to move uh-huh. we we're actually heading to Brazil with the dairy board but okay. the company they were buying there it, it didn't eventuate mm-hmm. so they said well we're, we're buying one in Australia called mm-hmm. Bonlac Foods in Victoria and um, do you want to go and merge the three consumer businesses together right. that we're buying so I said well we would always intended to mm-hmm. so end up in Australia he's we getting there a bit earlier than we expected. Mm-hmm. So yes yeah, so in 1991 I came to Australia and uh, I, I remember coming over my first visit here I, I came backwards and forwards for a, a few months on visits and the first visit my CFO presented me with the, the first working budget for the company which showed a whole loss and I was thinking I think Sri Lanka, even with a war going on,
0: looks, <laughs> looks better than being in Australia. But
1: uh, we um, we took the business. I had an amazing executive team, leadership team there, and we took the business from um, a lot. Of, the three businesses were mm-hmm. a significant loss when you put them together. Mm-hmm. And in three years, we had it at over a 10% EBIT to sales ratio. Okay. So it was a very good
0: turnaround. Right. Very, very successful. Uh-huh. And so what were some of the... Uh, the initiatives that you drove to enable that. Then,
1: well, we, we when we first got there, I so like talk we because sure. it was very much a team thing. Yeah. When I first got there, there were several things. One was, um, you know, parts of the company by nature of being in bad performing companies, people mm-hmm. were were down. Mm-hmm. So you, you deal with the you know the people issues through mm-hmm. the companies. We had um, had the opportunity to sort of. I guess you could brutally say clean out a lot of the people because we were merging it together. So we in, ended up with a very, very good team. Okay. Um, but a few of the key areas one, we had 45 brands when we started. Right. So we were just culling these legacy brands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think we were operating out of 13 distribution centres. You know, and I, I remember in the first year I was looking at, at accounts. You know, we're paying half a million dollars a year, I think it was, in um, courier courier charges to mm-hmm. courier product to different DCs. We right. had We had all the product that we wanted in Australia, it was all just in the wrong place. Sure.
0: Okay.
1: So we, we culled the brands, mm-hmm. um, brought that back, and these days the brands that are there are uh, or Fonterra as it is now, um, Bondland became Fonterra. Mm-hmm. Um, but Obviously, they, they franchised the Bigger brand. Bigger mm-hmm. is not a... F- we have no relationship with Fonterra mm-hmm. financially or shareholding-wise. Um, Western Star Butter, Perfect okay. Italiano Cheese, yeah. and several others. So it focused it down onto core brands, mm-hmm. and we moved everything to one distribution centre in Melbourne. So we went to one very big distribution centre, mm-hmm. um, and I think one over in Perth just because of the geography of getting product there um, so a lot of it was around internally driving efficiencies into the business by doing those sorts of things mm-hmm. and the other was building strong trade relationships okay um, innovation was a was a key part of, of what we did but over time another learning that, that I got around innovation was um, don't lose focus on the the, the, the power of what you've already got mm-hmm. you know a lot of people i think can be driven by we must innovate but mm-hmm. innovation drops pretty quickly i mean the the uh, you, for every hundred that you might launch you'd be probably lucky if 30 were there in a year or mm-hmm. two so yet you know you have big powerful parts of your business that you just sort of neglect while you're, mm-hmm. you're busy innovating mm-hmm. um, we learn very quickly not to neglect them
0: Mm, I think that's a great piece of advice because particularly uh, with so much change happening and so much disruption, uh, a lot of organisations both large and small are thinking how do I stay ahead of the curve by being incredibly innovative uh, but often if you stick to your knitting um, that's where the, you know, the real opportunities are.
1: They are and people to a large degree are creatures of habit mm-hmm. um, so if they go into a supermarket if there's a particular product within a brand that they've, they've bought continuously, they're quite likely to keep buying it, and they're mm-hmm. they're the real the SKUs that are big yep. big drivers. Sure, um, you know we were very focused on on ensuring that that we had high service levels to mm-hmm. the retailers, particularly in Australia, because those things if they're not on the shelf, you can have all the innovation you like, but if yep. you're if you don't have your
0: continu- continuity of
1: Shelf presence, mm-hmm. then nothing will sell.
0: Sure, okay. Yeah. And so, um, uh, after kicking some good goals there, you then stepped up to be MD of the the broader Fonterra business.
1: Yeah, in Australia at the time, Bonland became Fonterra Brands Australia. Okay. Um, so Fonterra in those days ran here as an ingredient company mm-hmm. and a consumer food service company, mm-hmm. and I, I um, Bonland became Fonterra Brands, and then we acquired. Several other companies mm-hmm. merged them in together, but you know, d- looking back on it, it was probably one of the most um, powerful leadership teams that I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what of the let's say seven people? Uh, I'm obviously I've moved now and I'm with, with Biggie Cheese as mm-hmm. CEO. Um, one of my colleagues is actually currently the um, the managing director of. Murray Goldman, okay. the, the company that's going through its own issues. Yes, um, another one is is the chief operating officer of Craft of Kraft North America, the, the Kraft business, and mm-hmm. Kraft Heinz, based mm-hmm. in Chicago. Um, another one is with Mondelez in Zurich, and, and another is the CFO of, of Amcor, okay. based in Zurich. So, wow, everybody's gone on to very big roles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very very sort of um um high profile role in one form another. And,
0: and how much of that do you think is just because they were innately highly competent people versus um Fonterra creating you know an environment that really developed people to their full potential?
1: I think um they 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 wouldn't have been there if they weren't highly competent highly right. intelligent. I sure. mean they they were Oh, sorry. Still are. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> still in their roles. Yeah. Very, very okay. intellectually powerful, but very commercially astute, okay. um, and work well as as a team. I do recall once we had some um, some um, external consultants working with us in an executive team meeting, mm-hmm. and at the end they said, "Oh, we'd like to work with you really more. You you appear to be the most dysfunctional." people that I've ever come across. Dysfunctional. Uh, Yes. Because we were it was very all of the discussions within the exec team in a in a team meeting were very direct. Okay. Lots of lots of swearing, (laughs) lots of put downs and all that. But it was just it was banter. Yeah. Um and people, you know, um, that was just how it was. Right. And then we left the meeting and everything you know, right.
0: Everyone got on famously, and so they you, still do. You just had strong opinions, and we we're, yeah. weren't afraid to share them. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's yeah. it. Um, I mean, as somebody who did psychology, uh, you know, so early in your career, you know, these sort of experiences must be very fascinating for you. Um, you know, there would be a lot of uh, management consultants out there that would look at a dysfunctional t- a team like that and go, "Dysfunctional, can't perform, big problems." Where the reality is, you, there's no one right rule for everybody, is there?
1: That's absolutely correct, and, mm. and the way that business was driven, it had a very, very strong um, sales competency yeah. um, through through the chap who's now with mm-hmm. Kraft and, and for, North, for the world really, for yeah. the craft part of Kraft Heinz. Um, very strong financial capabilities, mm-hmm. um, so so there were, you know, all of the roles were, were strong. Yeah. Um, But they had an understanding of each other's roles, so Mm -hmm. they could voice opinions quite easily.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, what eventually uh, led to you to move uh, away from Fonterra then?
1: Well, Fonterra went through its own changes. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I I looked at it, and and one of the reasons for leaving it there, you know, over, including the last year in in Sri Lanka, from that period until I left, I'd reported to nine people in eight years. Right. You know, it was just becoming, Yeah, I was actually starting to worry about myself. That you, <laughs> you're burning all these people. No, and some really. of them are fantastic right. people. But, um, you know, I and I knew Bega very well because mm-hmm. the, we at that stage, Fonterra, were mm-hmm. the franchisee of, of the Bega brand in Australia. So Barry Irvin, the chairman of, of uh, Bega, and myself used to sit on opposite t- sides of the table and and uh, negotiate or argue or whatever you like okay. to call it, um, yeah. you know. And eventually he said, "Well, why don't you come over?" As I say to him, you know, I came over to the dark side, but right. it was actually probably the the enlightened side okay. in, in hindsight. So it was really just time for you know time to change, time to move mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd had a with Fonterra and its and its legacies. I'd been there for I think. Um, Twelve or fourteen years or so, mm-hmm. um, and it was, you know, an appropriate time to move. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to Tatura. Yes, I, um, I when I when I joined Bia, and, and uh, our chairman Barry even said, "Well, you know, why don't you come and work for us?" And we bought this company up in Northern Victoria that mm-hmm. was, um, it had had its problems as well, um, but it was always. Very, very highly regarded in the in the dairy industry um, as a very forward thinking mm-hmm. company and you know through one one or two decisions as well as a drought at that time that I think went on for about eight years mm-hmm. in, in in Victoria, it had hit tough times and big had, had purchased the company the year before. Um, so I, I joined them um, and sort of got got the company very focused on certainly on infant formula, but also it's, it's. Well, I think these days we're probably the biggest cream cheese producers in okay. Australia, um, which is a, a very interesting business to be in, and we mm-hmm. export most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, the company was making a lot of products, and again we just sort of gradually brought it back and focused mm-hmm. it down on mm-hmm. key investment platforms, we already called it, and it was around infant nutrition and and our cream cheese business, mm-hmm. and the rest of it was just business you
0: had to do to use up the solids in milk. Mm-hmm. and milk. Um, and and then from there stepped into the the CEO role that you're currently in with Beega.
1: Yes, right. in uh,
0: in two thousand or early in two thousand and eleven, prior to the the IPO of Beega. Right, and so um, was the IPO well and truly on the radar prior to you stepping into that role. Yes, yes, it had been right. um, probably
1: and certainly Barry Irvin was the mm-hmm. leader and, and the, the person who'd, t- who'd taken it through the, the whole communication phase mm-hmm. and, and the IPO itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a very, very strong chairman uh, and executive chairman um, and had always had it in, in mind and had brought along the, the farming mm-hmm. owners. Mm-hmm. But effectively what had happened with Bega, there was, let's say 80 farmers owned it in the Bega Valley and it had this it was the origins being in a cooperative so you could buy your shares for say a dollar a share and if you wanted to leave you could sell them for a dollar yeah, a share yeah and it had this over time through its own success yeah. it had built up um a, a very very strong balance sheet mm-hmm. and a lot of you know a lot of asset backing per share mm-hmm. that couldn't there was no liquidity around it so that was one of the key drivers so the at the time of the um, at the time of the IPO, I think we only raised. I'm trying to remember now. There's probably thirty million dollars or so. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. We didn't raise the you know uh, do the IPO to raise a, a, an extensive amount of of money from the market. It was really to create liquidity mm-hmm. for the for the original owners, mm-hmm. um, and each of them are probably on average, you know. That IPO, they I think they made one and a half to two million dollars each or something like okay. that. So, yep. you know, they they the owners went from these dollar shares, and I think they ended up being valued at might have been eight dollars I think at the time. So they were happy. Yeah, and <laughs> right. these days these days are, that original dollar share would mm-hmm. be worth probably twenty five
0: dollars. Mm-hmm. So. And so, in, and what about in terms of your own? Uh, uh, professional development and your own uh, leadership style. I mean, uh, stepping into a business that then becomes a listed entity as CEO requires, you know, quite a uh, a, a change in the way I imagine that you would um, manage elements of what you do.
1: Um, yes and no. I don't think you stray too far from your core mm-hmm. core ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, you do. I do pause and think every now and again about. Yeah, different approaches to doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and, and Barry Irvin our chairman work very well together and it's very much a symbiotic relationship um, but you know the, my view is you keep businesses as simple as you possibly can. I don't know whether that's just me. I mean, sure. I don't like to read a lot. Right. I, I like to read books yeah. but I don't like to read Screeds and screeds of reports. Sure. I I like looking at numbers. Yeah. Uh, and get very forensic about numbers mm-hmm. um and see the patterns and trends. Mm-hmm. Um but I like to see it um sort of as simple as you can possibly make a business and delegate as much as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think I'm just being bone lazy, but right. uh you know, to to try and push it sure. down into the business, there's decisions that people are far better placed to make than, than mm-hmm. me. And I sort of sit there
0: and wonder sometimes, right? what can I add? And so if you've been in that role now for five years, if you look back over that period, you know, what would be a particular key achievement you'd hang your hat on and say, this is something I'm really proud of that uh, you know, I as you know, CEO with my team delivered for the business?
1: Oh, well, I think... Um uh, by now, and and as I said at the beginning of the the discussion, um, we're a very transparent business. You can mm-hmm. read a lot about us on the on our website mm-hmm. and on our investor reviews. Um, we're probably by the, by means of that transparency, you can see that we've been a very um, continually successful business, mm-hmm. not just peaking, you know, and, and sort of dropping away the following year or anything like that. So. Yep. The greatest, um, probably the most sort of rewarding or satisfying component of it is seeing that steady development and, and growth of the business uh-huh. um, and the focus growth and the reinvestment in terms of our capital platforms um, to, to handle that growth mm-hmm. and not straying too far from you know those core things that we set out to do four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the other very satisfying parts is obviously seeing people that are um, growing with the business. And and that's other than having a successful business. I think throughout my career, when you see people that, that have worked with me or for me and, mm-hmm. and have gone on to bigger and better things, that's probably one of the most rewarding sure. um, aspects of, of any
0: senior executive's uh, career. Yeah, and I think that that is a... Uh a very common theme uh, that successful CEOs take a great degree of uh, professional satisfaction in fostering people you know to achieve their own career successes absolutely and so now five years in the role or thereabouts when you look to the future you know what are the things that you're excited about for bigger and also for yourself? Um,
1: well in terms of bigger, uh, the thing that excites me most is it has a strong platform to continue to grow on. We've got internally, we've got very clear strategies for mm-hmm. growth. Mm-hmm. We're focused on growth, uh, and as I say to to anybody in the company and to our board as well, you know that we have aspirations. We'll put stakes in the ground and move towards it. We can't right. guarantee we're going to meet sure. that exact number in yeah. five years time, but that's that's the nature of mm-hmm. uncertainty. Right. But, You know, it's an incremental development of a
0: business. Um, It sounds to me as though you're not the kind of person who sets big, hairy, audacious goals. It's more about, you know, incremental, consistent, uh, defendable growth.
1: It certainly is. And a couple of reasons for that too. We're in the food industry Mm -hmm. and we're listed. Mm -hmm. Um, The food industry isn't an industry that, that... it has peaks and troughs by nature of the global commodity mm-hmm. cycles, but it's not an industry that, um, when you're in large scale food, I don't believe it's an industry that, you know, you can have a massive ride right. win, yeah, um, that comes from nowhere. Mm-hmm. You can, and I mean, mm-hmm. Chobani is a great example in 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 the US and here in Australia. Okay, um, but for us, we see it as more. You know, there's only so much food a human can eat. Right. Although we do, including myself, we try to <laughs> eat more than we should. Um, but, you know, so therefore that consistency. And the other thing I right. learned as well um, is, you know, our investors, mm. they don't want us, they want consistency and, and not, they, they won't get certainty, but they'll right. get consistency and a, yeah. a level approach and a responsible mm-hmm. approach. Mm-hmm. And those things are very important. Mm. You could call it, I've used the word incrementalism at work, um, mm-hmm. and some of my execs laugh at me when I say it, but um, for our type of business, it is
0: very, very much incremental. Okay. And what about in terms of for your own career? You know, uh, what, what types of things are you excited about doing in the future?
1: Um well, I'm, I'm actually retiring from Bigger in January next year, and I'm... I'm Sort of very public about it now because right. it's, I'm doing it. And if I don't, if I don't talk about it, then I might not get around to sure. doing it. Sort yeah. of thing. And it's it's been well planned for okay. eighteen months or so. You know, I've, I've sort of given our chairman and board a very long term mm-hmm. uh, or plenty of time to to right. think about it and how they're going to kind to of work with that. Yeah. Um. But you know, sort of, I'm at that stage now where. After five or six years
0: at bigger, mm-hmm. it's it's time for others to yep. have opportunities. And it sounds as though you've probably got a good fostered internal succession plan. Well, that's ultimately up to the
1: board. Sure, I can't you know I can't uh, determine what they'll do, yeah. but the the important thing is that we have strong people in the business mm-hmm. in terms of continuing to run you mm-hmm. know run the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You're quite right. There, we don't want to create upheaval for that reason of mm-hmm. steady growth. Um, you know, if you if you sort of turn the company upside down, and I think, you know, we, we our industry has seen a recent experience of that
0: that's created devastation amongst sure. its own supply base. And even in your own career, you mentioned uh, nine bosses in eight years. Uh, that's not uh, great for incremental uh, style organisations.
1: No, it isn't. No, mm-hmm. no. Um, but I'm I'm looking to you know to move on into a, a I guess a different phase of my life now. Right. Um, I'm doing work with with one or two organisations, mm-hmm. um, including mentoring some young young people that have got startups, which okay. I find incredible. I uh, attended a uh, a startup workshop to speak on behalf of Bega recently down on the south coast of New South Wales and you know you walk in there and they're all sitting on the floor with their computers emailing and doing whatever they're doing and I thought I'm completely out of my debt (laughs) (laughs) but they were fantastic it was uh, was one of the most energizing afternoons I've ever been involved in just the imagination and the the scope of thinking of some Mm -hmm. of these people um for starting new businesses, mm. and you talk about disruption, mm. um, these are these are really dis- you know, not just those people, but, but sure. the whole thinking around disrupt- disruptive um, mechanisms. Mm. And I think the one thing we did share, we all shared in common, was um, ultimately it doesn't really matter what the, whether it's a disruptive technology or mm-hmm. or an incrementalist approach to growth. Mm-hmm. The only thing that is in common is you have to reach a customer and yeah. tap into that customer and have them as an enduring sure. relationship for your product or brand. Yeah. Um, and we all shared that in common. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of talked about it, and everybody everybody got it and agreed, mm-hmm. and, and that's how we we looked at it. But they're, they're very interesting
0: things to be involved mm-hmm. in going forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the uh, the main motivations for this podcast is to uh, you know, share the stories and the wisdom of people who have had success. The predominant audience being those that would aspire to becoming a CEO or a non-executive director. So you've talked, uh, you know, uh, throughout this conversation about some of the things that are important to you. But if uh, you were offering some, you know, core pieces of advice that you've implemented in terms of your own career for people wanting uh, success, what, what would some of those things be?
1: I think you got. Well, first and foremost, you have got to work at it don't expect anybody to do anything for you mm-hmm. and if you want to internally in a business it's better to go to a superior or whoever it is with two or three solutions mm-hmm. to a problem than with the problem um, nothing makes my life easier and more satisfying than people saying you know, we have an issue yeah and this is what we could do about it sure and and therefore you don't have to learn about that particular mm-hmm. issue to make a decision. You can just intuitively, with experience such as my own, mm-hmm. you can support the decision being made. So I think working working hard on what you want. Um, in my own career, don't have a, an overly prescriptive view of where you want to go or what mm-hmm. you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, have, an, have a very strong view of where you want to be and what you want as a personal brand in, right, 20 or 30 years time. But how you get there, mm-hmm. life determines that. Sure, yeah, You can't determine it. I think those are, those are some key things. The other one for me is um, I've had, and while I say I had the nine people I reported yeah. to in eight years, some of those were fantastic. Sure. And some were longer than a year, by the yeah. way. It's just how things work in a large company. Yeah. But, um, you know, really pick up on, People's own experience that Mm -hmm. they can pass on to you. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Are are you somebody who's had formal mentors or an executive coach in your career?
1: um, Not really. No, I've had very. um, I've been very fortunate to work for some people that have been very good to me Mm -hmm. uh, and and took the time, particularly in my early years, to to work with me. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I was going to say is a key aspect for me is. And it's different for different people, but I have a very, very supportive wife Mm -hmm. who's a great sounding board Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we do these three sixty degree, you know, peer reviews and all that and you take them home, she said, Well, what did you pay for all that? I could have told you all this stuff straight away. (laughs) And and if you if you ask anybody that, they'll generally actually admit it or tell you the same story. Yeah, Uh, sure so
0: sometimes you don't want it quite as direct as it would come from your wife though i mean yeah well no you're <laughs> right you,
1: oh there's an ex- interesting observation you can actually take it from your wife but you can't take it from people that you're not sure whether they sure. should be giving it to you
0: well i suppose uh, you've been married for 32 years so uh, we could have a whole other podcast on what makes a successful marriage i imagine oh yes yes oh, good on you. and look yeah. just to close it out because i know that uh you're a busy guy and you've got a, a weekend to go away to so um uh, we've talked all about business and so on, but what about when you're not at work, what are the things that you enjoy that keep you fresh? I mean, obviously you love the rugby and you mentioned you like reading books, but, uh, you know, what, what's your thing?
1: Uh well, actually probably, um, my, I was talking about my wife. I think she's long suffering in terms of trying to keep me healthy. Right. Um, but we do get, we do a lot of walking. Yeah. Um, me, not as much as she does. Right. But, I do enjoy it. Um, okay. I like getting out, even on my own. I like walking and just thinking.
0: You know, you you mm-hmm. just sort of the solitude of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you talk walking, do you mean going for a walk around the block each day, or going and doing you know the bush walks or yeah. Oh well, no,
1: walk around the block sure. each day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But recently we we rode the Otago Rail Trail in okay. New Zealand right. um, with two of our sons and nice. and and one of the fiance as well, my wife and I, and, and that was just amazing. Um, right. You know, just to get into those environments. Um, I travel a lot, I travel a lot through work, but I travel a lot mm-hmm. with my wife and, mm-hmm. you know, get to experience places such as Alaska and, mm-hmm. and things like that and I really enjoy those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are special occasions, sure. I suppose, that yeah. you, you organize over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of you know just hanging out really mm-hmm. with our family. I, mm-hmm. I love being with my sons and mm-hmm. they're all grown up now. But and where are they living? They're in Melbourne. Oh they're in um, Melbourne too? Um, yeah okay. so Jenny and I share our time between right Melbourne and, and Marimbula where we have a house. There. Okay. It's close to bigger. but right. um, it's always it's, it's lovely in both places. Sure. completely different. Um, and I so,
0: suppose in a year you'll have more time to do some of those things.
1: Oh, I expect so. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. Oh, yes. good on you. Yeah.
0: Well, look, uh, Aidan, I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, come and have a chat to us and, uh, you know, have a fantastic afternoon.
1: Thank you very much,
0: Richard. It's a okay. pleasure to be here. Bye. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I'm really looking forward to having you along for future episodes of the Aratay podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.